Welcome to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where national experts bring you facts and answers. I'm your host, Dr. Onit Lev, an emergency and addiction doctor who has served at the White House and still practices on the front lines. Right here on High Truths, you will learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. To grow this community of information and action, I hope you give us a five-star review. Come visit me at hightruths.com to learn more about the show and download a free prescription for naloxone. Carrying naloxone for drugs is like carrying an EpiPen for allergies. Today's episode is sponsored by Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis. Visit their website at isaacone.org. That's I-A-S-I-C-1.org. Use their friendly medical library that translates medical journals for public understanding, listen to their free speaker series, and follow the science on marijuana. Hello again, High Truth listeners. Get ready for a brainy conversation. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. Brainy because we're going to be talking about the brain. Your brain is the center of everything about you, from breathing, talking, thinking, and feeling. Drugs affect the brain in a number of ways. PET scans of the brain show decreased activity in parts of the brain in people with addiction. I've been very impressed by seeing PET scans showing holes or defects in the brain of people who are addicted to methamphetamine. But also impressive is that those same holes can be repaired if patients stop using methamphetamine. Drugs also work on depleting the body's supply of dopamine. Dopamine is a neurotransmitter that is essential to life, like having water or oxygen. When you use a drug, you get a surge of dopamine, and that can feel good temporarily. If your brain continues to get dopamine from cocaine or marijuana, then your brain says, hey, I don't need to make my own dopamine. I'm already getting more than I need from these other drugs. And your body auto-regulates stopping to make its own dopamine. Now you got a vicious cycle because you need dopamine to live and your body isn't making it. And without dopamine, you feel like you're dying. So now you need drugs to not just to get high, but to feel normal. To do this podcast, I need about 15 or 40 dopamine units. My best day ever, wedding day, winning the lottery, 100 dopamine units. But with drug use, the amount of dopamine needed just to get up in the morning is a thousand units. That's the new baseline. Without it, you feel anxious and depressed. But the good news is, with time and treatment, the brain can readjust and recover. Your brain is adaptable. And while you may have a genetic predisposition for addiction or mental health diseases, the brain can be repaired. We're going to learn more about the brain with an expert psychiatrist. Dr. Jeffrey Borenstein. Dr. Borenstein is a medical doctor of psychiatry and serves as a president and CEO of Brain Behavior Research Foundation, the largest private funder of mental health research grants. Dr. Borenstein developed the Emmy-nominated public television program, Healthy Minds, and serves as host and executive producer of the series. To learn more about Dr. Jeffrey Borenstein, check out the High Truth show notes. Dr. Jeffrey Bornstein, welcome to High Truths. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for having me. 
I am excited to have you here. I'm excited to join your show in the future. And I uh, was really inspired when we met on a PBS program that we were both on in South Florida. It was great meeting you. Uh, even though we've never been in the same room together, I feel as if I know you. And I guess it shows the power of these kind of virtual meeting places. That's right. That's right. And I, yeah, I was great. And I like, okay, I want to meet that guy. <laughs> and I, I got to do that. I felt the same way. And so I want our audience to get to know you a little bit. You're a psychiatrist. Uh, you went to medical school like me and you chose psychiatry. I chose emergency medicine. Um, why, why did you do that? You know, when I went to medical school, I didn't know what area I'd be interested in. Um, but it really was during medical school when I did the behavioral science rotation and then the psychiatry rotation that it, it just pulled me in. And I, I like being able to speak with people and help them. And we are able to make a big difference in people's lives. And also, I like the idea that during the course of my professional career, we would learn more about the brain because then and even still now to a large degree, we don't fully understand. We don't understand how the brain works in many ways. We have effective treatments, but my hope was that during the course of my career, new treatments would would come into being, and that really has happened over time. And um, those are really the reasons that that brought me into it, and I couldn't be happier that I made that choice. Right, I'm sure you like people too, and I like people, and you know what we. I guess in all of medicine, we're rushed and we don't have that much time nowadays, but at least in psychiatry, we do have more time and you can um, get to sit down and get to know the person fully and then help them and make a big difference in their life. That's true. I think psychiatrists and emergency physicians do have opposite um, personalities. My favorite meetings that we've had as a as a group were uh, collaborations between emergency physicians and psychiatrists because the emergency physicians were like all over the place and we're always talking, we always have ideas and we're running a million miles an hour. And the psychiatrists at the end of the meeting, it's like they didn't say a word. It's like, hmm, that's interesting. <laughs> they, I agree with you. Although I have to say during training, um, I did medical school and residency at NYU. So Bellevue was the, one of the training hospitals. And the Bellevue Psychiatric Emergency Room was a lively place. And it really was um, similar to what your job is in that people would come in and we would need to quickly evaluate and help them. And it, it could be various types of emergencies. And I did like doing that during my training. Yeah. But you're not just a doctor and psychiatrist. You're also an Emmy Award-nominated television host. How did that come about? uh, Well, I'm not a television person, um, but I had been a guest on a local PBS channel uh, talking about depression. And it was at about the time that um, there was an instance where Tom Cruise was jumping on Oprah's couch and saying, I don't know, I don't remember what he said. Um, And the next day, the president of the American Psychiatric Association was on the Today Show and said, you know, he's a very good actor, but he's really not qualified to talk about psychiatry. And at that point, I felt that we as a field were responsive, but not proactive in informing the public about psychiatric conditions and substance abuse conditions. 
And that really is what inspired me. And I spoke with the folks at the public television station. They agreed. And we began uh, Healthy Minds. And um, we are now beginning production. And you're going to be a guest for season nine wow. of the series. And the, the response from, in addition to receiving Emmy nominations and Tally Awards and other recognition, the response from the audience is what makes it so worthwhile. And the typical response is that it opens up conversations where there wasn't a conversation before. And being able to go in people's homes, first just on a TV and now on a TV and also on the internet because it's available at pbs.org, um, I think gives an intimacy uh, and a comfort to open up conversations where there might have been silence before. Wow, that's impactful. And I could see why we're a kindred spirit, because you took your profession and uh, became an, an, an activist uh, in it, both, you know, individual with patients, but also a, a, as at a, at a community level. Yes. Um, psychiatry in the brain, you said there you're interested in, about both. What do we need to know on a basic level to understand how the brain is affected by drugs and also mental health? Because I know you're very big proponent of treating the whole person and um, uh, issues of mental health and also addiction. Yeah, it, it really is extremely important. And um, for many years, I had the privilege of um, being the uh, director of a psychiatric hospital. And we treated people with psychiatric illness. We treated people with dual diagnosis, which means a psychiatric condition, along with substance abuse, substance misuse. Um, so we had the opportunity to treat people um, and help them and make a difference in their lives. And over the last 11 to 12 years, I've served as the head of the Brain and Behavior Research Foundation. And the foundation is the largest private funder of research grants to support researchers around the world in better understanding the brain and ultimately developing new treatments for psychiatric illness, chemical dependency, et cetera. And I think one of the key points, when we went to medical school, we were taught that old brains don't grow new cells and old brains meant after the age of two. <laughs> and we now know that's not true, that old brains um, at any age can grow new cells through a process that's called neurogenesis. And exercise is an important impetus to neurogenesis, and it makes a very big difference in people's health. And some of the other treatments um, that we have in psychiatry may increase neurogenesis. And the, the new cells, brain cells, the new connections between them can help improve somebody's health. So it's important for people to know that if they are experiencing depression or any other condition, that the brain changes. The brain can heal itself with proper treatment and proper care for oneself. That's great. Um, um, good to know that there is hope. And I think it, it's adaptability, right? The, I think you don't get new brain cells, but the ones that you have can get those new dendrite and new connections, and, and that part can grow. Yeah, no, actually, new cells also grow, in, in particular in the hippocampus um, through neurogenesis. So it it is a, a it the, the brain really can help heal itself with the right treatment, and that's important for people to know. 
that's interesting. You're right. That has been a, a paradigm shift in in education. Um, Very much so. We, you know, we we were taught, and this is based in part on research, more recent research that's taken place that uh, has proven that this to be the this is the case. Wow. So actually, new neurons can make not just the actual neuron adapting with its dendrites and connections, but you could actually make new nuclei. New cells, new cells are are are, are growing. Yes. Wow, that that is a big shift. Um, so that's amazing research, and you your institution um, funds uh, research on the brain. Can you tell us about some of the examples of of innovation? Yes, yes, um, and there's a number of them. I'll I'll just point to a few of them. One is the development of rapid acting antidepressants. Um, for many years, we felt that an antidepressant, the commonly used ones, the SSRIs, SNRIs, Prozac is the most famous of them, but there are a number of them, can take two to four to six weeks until it works. The idea that a medicine could work in two hours was unthinkable. But there was reason to believe that a certain medicine that's used in for anesthesia may have a rapid acting effect for depression in the brain. And that's the medicine called ketamine. And people have heard of the use of ketamine for depression. The Brain and Behavior Research Foundation were early supporters of investigations looking at the use of ketamine. And a form of ketamine, S-ketamine, was approved by the FDA as a rapid acting antidepressant for people who have what we refer to as refractory depression, which means depression that doesn't get better from the typical treatments. Um, and so this is a new treatment available. It's not perfect, but it does work when it does work. It does work within a few hours. More work needs to be done in terms of research to better understand the mechanism of action, to minimize side effects, and to have that efficacy continue, the effect continue, because typically it wears off after a week or two. So a lot of work still needs to be done, but the, the fact that this medicine has helped people who weren't helped by anything else uh, is a big step forward. So that's one example. Let's, can we talk about ketamine a little bit? Um, we, we use that as an uh, anesthetic agent in the emergency department uh, for yeah. procedures and sedation. I, I know there are psychiatrists who do IV ketamine treatment for depression. I know that there's some abuse of uh, ketamine on the outside. I'm yeah. I'm trying to think because we see a lot of patients who come in with depression, kind of like the Bellevue uh, 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 emergency department that you were describing, who are very depressed, suicidal. Um, and I'm wondering, is there a role for ketamine in, in that acute area? And do the patients need to detox from the other drugs that may be causing their suicidality and altered mentation before you add ketamine to that? Great question. I would say we need more research to better understand to get to that answer. But just off the cuff, I would say they do need to detox before we want to add something. So you want to be careful about that. But the that type of use of ketamine as a rapid-acting antidepressant it can really be a game-changer in treatment. Because if you think about it, somebody comes to the emergency room, is depressed and suicidal, so they need to be admitted to the hospital for safety. But if we give them medicine that lifts the depression and it lifts the suicidal risk as well, then they don't need to stay 
in the hospital for a week, two weeks, three weeks. They could go home that day, continue treatment on an outpatient basis. They could go to school the next day. They could go to work the next day and move on with their life. And that's a real big is, game is, change. Is anybody doing that now? Is that something I should bring to my hospital? I think it's something that you should look at. I don't know that that's quite ready for prime time. I think okay. more work needs to be done. There's another treatment that's being looked at also in the same exact way that you're describing in an emergency room, which um, is, uh, or in a very brief stay hospitalization, which is transcranial magnetic stimulation. And TMS is where magnets are applied to the head and a gentle current occurs and it's pinpointed at a particular place in the brain and this has been demonstrated to treat depression. And Brain and Behavior Research Foundation was early supporters of the initial work using TMS for depression with Dr. Mark George at the University of South Carolina. And that has been approved since 2008 as a treatment for depression. It's being looked at as a treatment for other conditions, including chemical dependency. And there's been a lot of work to fine-tune that treatment. Most recently at Stanford um, by, uh, uh, again, a researcher that we've supported, um, Dr. Nolan Williams, who has fine-tuned the treatment so that it becomes a rapid-acting form of treatment. They give more sessions of it. They make sure that it's individually directed for each patient, and it's been found to work within a few days. So it's exactly what you're describing, where somebody doesn't need to spend a few weeks in the hospital, the depression could lift right away. And this is something that form of treatment uh, recently was approved by the FDA as well. And that may be uh, even before ketamine is, is ready for prime time in the way we just, just are discussing, that may be ready for prime time um, to help get people safe and healthy enough to go home right away. Interesting. And I'm wondering if that one, you have to have patients to detox before you um, uh, apply the treatment. And also, I was surprised to find out it's not that expensive. Yeah, it, it isn't that expensive. Um, I can't really tell you what the price is, but I, certainly in a, in a large institution, they can afford to, to have that. And if you think about the effect on people's lives, and the cost savings of not being hospitalized for an extended period, um, you know, whatever the price is, it's worth it. It's, it saves money over the long haul um, by helping people so rapidly. Wow. So those are two uh, examples. And I'll give another example. Um, in psychiatry over the years, we really haven't been as focused on prevention as we wish we could be. So in other areas, as you know, in cardiology, we, we do prevention. If somebody has high blood pressure, we're going to treat that with anti-hypertensive medicine. If they have high cholesterol, we're going to treat that with diet, maybe with medicine. In psychiatry, we haven't done prevention as much. And the one area that we've funded that has tremendous potential as a primary form of prevention is choline supplementation in pregnant women to reduce the risk down the road of schizophrenia and maybe other psychiatric illnesses in the unborn child. So just as we give folic acid to pregnant women to reduce the risk of 
certain conditions in the unborn child. Um, there's a potential that giving choline supplements to pregnant women can reduce that risk. The research is ongoing on this, but early indications among groups of people that received that kind of a um, supplementation indicates that the risk of developing schizophrenia and other illnesses may be less in those children. We won't know for sure because those children now in this research study are still young. They're six, seven years old. Typically, tragically, schizophrenia develops in the late teens and the early 20s. So we won't know for sure for a period of time. But at this point, the AMA now recommends choline supplementation for pregnant women. And this is something that people should be aware of that may um, reduce the risk of schizophrenia, which if that happens, even if it reduces schizophrenia by 10%, um, that would be an extraordinary thing for individuals, for families, for society, for the issue of homelessness, for people involved in the criminal justice system. It Absolutely. would be a tremendous, a tremendous step forward for us. I love the concept of prevention and that the field of psychiatry is going that way, but I can't help uh, but interject here uh, that one of the things you, I'm sure you're familiar with the ABCD study of, of, of brain development, the largest uh, multi-hospital system of uh, tracking kids when they were uh, pregnant, birth, and, and uh, long longitudinal study. And one of the things that they seen, they learned a lot from this study, but the effect of marijuana um, when on and maternal use and then anxiety and mental health issues on on the child to be born. Um, I'm wondering if your study controls for that, because I think that if we just did that one thing also, drug prevention when you're pregnant or even, you know, you know, when you're thinking of becoming pregnant for the man and woman, uh, and long-term mental health uh, would be probably even more effective um, than than choline. I, I think um, that's a very good point. So I'll say two things. One is, um, it's a good question. I don't know how well, I don't know the details if it did control for that, but there were two groups. One was the study group that received choline and another group received dietary recommendation. So those were the two groups because you can't, in an ethical study, just let somebody not have enough dietary choline. So the, in the real world, there's that third group that may not take in enough choline. So it probably would be reasonable to assume that the two groups, the control group and the active group, had similar backgrounds in terms of whether or not they misuse substances during pregnancy, but I don't know. So that's a very good question. I think you bring, on, bring up an extremely important point about marijuana use both during pregnancy um, and, and in general, um, and especially for teenagers, young adults whose brains are still developing. We know that brains are still developing through the mid-20s and are very uh, potentially susceptible to negative effects of using marijuana. And the fact that it's been legalized in so many places has opened the the door for people to say, well, if it's legal, it must be okay. And it, it's a real concern. Uh, there are instances where people uh, who may be at risk of schizophrenia, maybe they would get it, maybe they wouldn't, but then the use of marijuana sort of pushes them over the edge. 
and they become psychotic uh, and develop illness. It's a it's a very significant problem, and I think it's one that I know that you feel very passionate about this. Um, it's it's such an important issue in and of itself. And then there's the issue of marijuana leading to other substance misuse as well. So it's a it's there's a variety of of problems related to the marijuana use. Right. And you say it very well, like uh, the gateway uh, issue, which is just real. I mean, if you're uh, knowing how the brain develops, right, if it's if you if you train your brain to go into music and athletics and it'll grow more pathways that way, if you train it um, to want more dopamine from marijuana, then, then that's the pathway that that'll grow, um, as well as the mental health effects. I wish um, we could get more psychiatrists, and maybe this is something you can help out with, Dr. Bornstein, is I see psychiatrists in particular dismissing the issue of marijuana and the medical community in general. Last night, I worked in the emergency department, and I had a, a 19-year-old come in, you know, wandering off the streets, very psychotic, paranoid, and the reaction was, okay, well, let's just get a psych consult, and, you know, he's on a 5150, day injured of a self, and let's see what happens. And I, I know what's going to happen. He'll detox from whatever, he'll do better, and he'll go back to the street. But when I talked to him a little more, I asked him what he's using, and I, he said marijuana. I said, what kind of marijuana are you using? And he was using the wax. That's 98% THC. And if nobody told him, say, you know what, if you can stop this now when you're 19 years old, you may not have, you know, the 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 terrible uh, diagnosis of schizophrenia for the rest of your life. This does not have to be your life. If, if we intervene early and sound the alarm early in people's lives, they may not have this destiny of chronic mental illness. Um, but by saying nothing, um, we're condemning people. I, I agree with you. I, I think um, it's important for us to educate the public, to educate for starting in elementary school, to teach children about the dangers. Um, and, and I think it's incumbent upon parents to, to, to really speak to their, their children about it. And I remember when my um, oldest daughter was, was starting kindergarten and they had an orientation for the new parents and the principal of the school sat down and um, said uh, to us, I'm giving you only one piece of advice. I know you're all very busy, but as much as you can, you should eat dinner together and you should ask your child, how was the day? And a, and a one-word answer, like, okay, doesn't cut it and have conversations. And I think that's very important. I think that parents um, can have a big impact on their children by speaking about these things early on, modeling them early on, and uh, it can make a very big difference in, in their lives. That's right. Conversations and how are you? Go a long, long way. And the other thing that you said that I've heard several times in and by other guests and experts that I had is the importance of exercise and mental health and addiction. I've heard of people like, "How did you quit drugs?" And it's like, "I walked across the entire United States," <laughs> and, right. or um, running, and how that affects uh, improves your mental health and 
um, and, and, and issue with addiction. So that's interesting to hear you say that. And there are other things yeah. that you're doing that I haven't heard of so much, stem cell optogenetics for mental health and the brain. Explain what that's all about. Sure. So in addition to supporting the type of clinical interventions, um, treatment or prevention that I described, BBRF has supported basic research because we need that basic research to understand the brain. And one of the areas that we supported relates to the development of optogenetics. And optogenetics was developed by Dr. Carl Dyseroff at Stanford and colleagues. And it's a way that they genetically engineer the brain cells of mice so that they'll respond to light. And then they put in a, a, a wire into the brain that could turn on and off laser light to turn on and off specific brain cells or groups of cells. And then you can see the behaviors of the mouse and the connections those cells have to other parts of the brain. And this sounds like science fiction, but it's real science now. And it's used by thousands of labs around the world to study the brain. And I'll give you an example. I was at a conference, and as you know, when they present the scientific findings, they talk about their methods and what they do. So they start talking about the methods, and the scientist says, using standard optogenetic techniques, we did X, Y, and Z. That's like saying, on a standard flight to Mars, we saw X, Y, and Z. It just It's science fiction, but it is real science, and it's helping us better understand the brain. Um, that is, so, that is finest. Yeah, it, um, the the area of stem cells is very interesting and has has real potential. Which uh, we can't go in and take a sample of somebody's brain; it's too invasive um, to study. You know, other parts of the body we can take a sample and, and study, but we can't do that for the brain. What scientists are able to do now is take a skin cell sample, turn those skin cells into stem cells and then turn those stem cells into brain cells and grow them in a lab in a Petri dish. So we are now able to study the brain cells of people and compare people who have various conditions, for instance, schizophrenia, with controls who don't have that condition and look for differences. And this is now actually happening. It's a way to, to study the, the, the brains of people with various conditions. And down the road, there's the potential that it can help us in diagnosis and treatment. So somebody would come to me for treatment and we would get a blood sample or a skin sample, send it to the lab, turn it into stem cells, turn it into brain cells, and that can help with the diagnosis and maybe help with what's the best treatment for somebody with this genetic makeup. Because often it's, we don't often get the right medicine the first time. It's sometimes we have to try one and then try another. This could help us more quickly get to the right medicine. So there's a lot of potential. Again, this is not ready for prime time. I know, but I, I see that also, like if you are able to do that with the stem cells, you could also see what drugs do to those brain cells. Exactly, exactly. So it's a way both to study different treatments in the broader sense, but down the road to have biomarkers of an individual that could help lead to diagnosis and treatment decisions. So these are all, and this is not science fiction. This is real science and people are working on it. But also prevention, right? Like I know 
Um, I have lipoprotein A and so does my husband. We're more susceptible to having uh, lipid issues and heart attacks. But if you know that, and I could test my kids, they all have lipoprotein A. So I don't have to wait for them to be 50 and get a heart attack. I could, you know, start treatment uh, at age 20 um, to prevent that. And so I think the same thing comes with with mental health and addiction. I I agree with you 100%. And I think often people who um, are in recovery for chemical dependency are really sensitive to the important issue of making sure that children know about this and know that they may be at a higher risk and they should be even more careful than what we're describing already, that everybody should be careful and not misuse marijuana. But somebody who has a family history of substance abuse should be extra careful about it. And, um, and somebody who has a family history, again, if you have a, if your parents have a history of depression, that doesn't mean you're going to have depression or bipolar disorder or any of these conditions, but you may be at a slightly higher risk. So you should be aware of it, just as you described in your family, the, the, the heart risk. So I, I think these are very important things that could help people make better decisions and move towards prevention. Right. I love that. And you talk about you have a dual diagnosis unit or um, treatment that that treats patients who have both. And we know that there's a big overlap between mental health and substance use disorder. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes. Um, So we don't I'm not involved in in direct treatment at a hospital anymore or an outpatient program. But over the years, I was. And um, the dual diagnosis track and treatment really looked at the whole person, not a part of them. You can't treat, if somebody has depression and substance abuse, you can't treat one without the other. You have to treat both. You have to treat them at the same time. And it's important to do that. So that's really the goal of a dual diagnosis treatment program, to treat the whole person. And you know, years ago, um, people in the recovery community might have misgivings about somebody taking a medication to treat depression. But the recovery community has in many ways become a lot more sophisticated than the general public and and often, unfortunately, some physicians about this. So over the years, we saw a shift in this. And we would see patients come in and who are starting to go to meetings and say, you know, People at the meeting are telling me I should ask about having an antidepressant because they think I'm depressed and maybe I need one in addition to self-help and groups, et cetera. So I, I think that the the world of recovery is really beginning to embrace this as well. And it's important to treat the whole person. That's really nice. Um, I want to talk about your your show, Healthy Minds. Now it's in nine seasons. Yes. Um, you've had a long career in, in psychiatry. And with your show, how do you see things have developed over time? Have the, the topics changed over time? Um, uh, let me ask you that at first. Yeah, it, it's a great question. So um, I, it's, it's an interesting, I never thought of that, uh, how it changed over time. I think one change is we do present information about cutting-edge research. So some of the things that we've discussed today didn't exist yet, 
and I've had the opportunity to interview um, Dr. Dyseroff, who developed with colleagues optogenetics, and Mark George, who developed uh, transcranial magnetic stimulation, and people who have worked on ketamine and, and stem cells, et cetera. So the new, the new research, I've had the opportunity to speak with people about. Um, but also, um, I've spoken with people who share their own personal experience with psychiatric conditions. And I, I think that over time, um, people have become more comfortable sharing that. And it is important that people not suffer in silence, that people reach out for help and accept help. And having some guests who share their experience is inspiring for people to then go and get the treatment themselves. So um, I, I think that that's an important So area. the stigma for mental health and substance use disorder has, has decreased over time. You've seen that. I, I think that um, there the still is, and, and, and we all use the term stigma. I use the term stigma. I don't think it's the right term. It okay. really is prejudice. It really is prejudice. Mm. And th there is prejudice in, in our society about mental health and substance abuse disorders. There's prejudice in the field about it. So th that is, probably is a better term, but we use the word stigma. Uh, I think there's been improvement. I think younger people are much better. Um, the, again, I remember the, the the same child that I was in the you know kindergarten orientation for, taking her to college, seeing that there were signs up there about mental well-being and mental health and and um, organizations related to that. That didn't exist when I was in college. So I think that the younger generation is is much much better with that. Um, but that brings us to the you know in, on the other side of the spectrum, um, we, we're seeing a lot of psychiatric illness among young younger people, and this, this is a, a a big question in the field. Why is that so? What's happening now that's different than in the past? Are we recognizing it more? Is there more depression and anxiety than? At other times, these are all very important questions. The bottom line is, if somebody's experiencing one of those things or others, uh, they should get treatment. They should get help and not not suffer in silence. So that's a, that's another thing we could debate about the the why. Um, but I think over time, at least I'm seeing a lot more quantity of mental health crises. Yeah, I, I think. I think you're right. We know that the the numbers are up. We know that the um, you know tragically uh, suicide is a is a major cause of death among young people. You know that that that's a tragic situation. So more needs to be done again in terms of prevention, but also in terms of getting people into treatment sooner rather than later for all the conditions. Often people suffer with a depression for an extended period of time before they get treatment, if they do get treatment, uh, right. or schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. There's studies that have shown people have these conditions for months and years before they begin to get treatment. And, you know, that's not the case for somebody has diabetes. They don't have that condition for months and years before they get treatment. 
or right. other medical conditions. We don't want everyone to end up in DKA in a coma before we diagnose and treat their diabetes. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So we need to do we need to do a lot more. We need to educate parents, um, educate teachers and other education pro- professionals who are with the kids, what they should do when they see that there's a problem so that they could help the child. Um, There's there's a lot that needs to be done. I think in the past, we didn't even, we as a field, didn't even think that young children could have depression or anxiety. And we now know that they can, and that with treatment, it could get better. And early intervention makes a big difference. Right. I, I love the upstream approach. Also, we, again, being an emergency physician, I see the worst at the, uh, you know, at the peak moment, but that makes me want to go upstream. So we, I don't have that business. Um, but yeah. I also think we need to get to the why, because if we just have a pipe stream of, for treatment, whether it's mental health or, or substance use disorder and not go upstream to the, why is this happening and how do we prevent it in the first place? We're just going to have more of the same. I agree with you. And it really is a big question. What's going on? We, yeah. we know COVID had an effect. And so we that's an easy one to point to. What we need to do about it, we need to figure out. But this was happening before COVID occurred. So it is, we can't just blame COVID no. for it. And um, does it have to do with social media? Does it have to do with people being on they're, you know, we, people are on their iPhone. I'm on my iPhone all the time. But, you know, young people, what does it mean to the brain, the developing brain, that so much time is spent looking at your phone instead of looking directly at another person and, and interacting with them? I'm kind of thinking it's more of a, a sense of um, uh, purpose and and belonging and pride. In, in who I think it's more as simple as that. Um, you, you know, there was a survey of like, what, what are the happiest places in the world to live in? Uh, United States mm-hmm. is not one of them. But, um, but the countries who did strike high on there, it's because of their uh, sense of pride and, and belonging and, and meaning. People want to have meaning in their life. Um, so I, that's kind of my, but that, those are just theories. Um, I, I think those are all important things. I agree with you. I think those are all, all important things. Yeah. Um, but I, I think that, but a part of that does come from regular interactions with other people mm-hmm. and positive interactions. It, back when we were growing up, if there was a bully who may have started up with you in the schoolyard, you'd go home and be safe and done with that. Now the bullies continue to bully the person online and on social media, et cetera. It, it, a child can't escape from it. And I think, again, a, a matter of prevention is for parents to talk about this and let their child know that if somebody's doing something like that, bullying them, they need to speak up about it. And the parents need yeah. to help them deal with that. And not again, not just suffer quietly with this, because that can bring on a depression, that can bring on anxiety, understandably. So, um, so I, I think that it, it, people need to have an eye on these things um, and right. help their child. That's a really good point. Home used to be your safe space, and now it's not necessarily that way. It follows yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, it's, a, it's a change. You know, some of the social interactions by, you know, the phone are fine. You know, that, that's okay. But 
when it when you see a group of kids standing around together and all they're doing is looking at their iPhone and they're not inter- you wouldn't know that they're together they've ever met each other and they're just right. looking at their iPhones that um, probably isn't the healthiest thing. And so let's speak of iPhones. I know that the iPhone is your drug dealer these days. Um, and that's uh, where, where kids get uh, drugs. And we're kind of ta- talking about change over time, um, quantity uh, of, of patients, the type of diagnoses, but also I think the drugs have changed over time, right? We never had fentanyl, which is just um, a, a potential death sentence for someone who just, you know, makes a bad choice um, uh, over time. And uh, we talked about marijuana, the, the potency. We never had these waxes and dabs that were 98% THC in the past. So I think those are some things that have changed as well. Very much so. Certainly the potency of, of marijuana is very different than back in the day for older people. It's a, it's a different drug. It's much stronger. And I think the fentanyl, in, in many ways is is a is a change is a big change because somebody first of all um, somebody may buy something that they think is something else and to misuse and they shouldn't do that they never should have done that never was the right thing to do but now it could cause immediate death because other drugs may be laced with fentanyl and the person can die and we've both heard of tragic situations where that's happened. So there's a new risk um, that parents need to, educators need to explain to kids that if you're buying something out on the street, you really don't know what it is. This is very dangerous. And people need to understand that. And, you know, kids, all of this way, kids think they're indestructible and they're okay, etc. But this is different. This is this is different, and it's like playing with a loaded gun. So I I think uh, we need to get that word out more uh, about the danger of fentanyl. Whether or not you're trying to use fentanyl, you may end up using fentanyl if you buy a drug out on the streets. Right, right. Plenty of kids that you thought you brought a Xanax or you thought that you're studying for finals and you bought an Adderall and that was it. That was yeah. it. Not, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, things have changed over time. Um, Healthy Minds, uh, are you excited about season nine? I'm very excited about it. Um, First of all, I'm thrilled that you're going to be a guest and we're going to talk about some of these things in greater detail. Me too. Um, This time I'll ask you all the questions. So so you'll you'll provide really good answers to it. Um, And I'm excited about a number of the guests that we have uh, coming up. uh, For me, it is a real joy to get to have conversations with people and give them a chance to share their experiences, their perspective to a broader audience. Um, because we need to have these conversations. And uh, I think in the past that hasn't happened. And I think it's made a difference being able to be proactive in putting this information out to people in a way that's engaging and informative. So, um, but it's a serious show. It's a, you know, it's a, it's a a show that provides important and useful information for people. That's great. And final thoughts, Dr. Bornstein, about how to create and maintain a healthy mind. I think there's there's a few key things. Um, 
first of all, social interaction. Be connected. So you want to be connected with family, friends, colleagues. Um, isolating is very unhealthy. And being connected is very healthy for the brain. We're social animals, so we need to make use of that. So that's number one. Number two um, is taking care of oneself. Exercise is important, as we've discussed. Sleep is important. Good sleep habits are very important to brain health. Uh, so uh, taking good care of oneself. And then finally, um, if you or a loved one, if you're feeling depressed, anxious, having difficulty functioning at the level that you, you usually function, you shouldn't suffer in silence. If you twisted your ankle and was walking with a limp, somebody would say, hey, you're walking with a limp, let's go and get help for you, or you would realize it yourself. If you're experiencing these types of symptoms, get help, because while we're doing research to develop better treatments and methods of prevention, we have very effective treatments now, whether they be medication, talk therapy, transcranial magnetic stimulation, and other types of approaches that are newer, we have very effective treatments for these conditions. So people should get that help. That's great. Thank you so much, Dr. Jeffrey Borenstein. Healthy Minds, talking about the inner uh, connectivity of mental health and substance use disorder. And uh, I appreciate your expertise. I look forward to being on your show uh, as well. And uh, thank you for all the research and advocacy that you do and provide. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for all that you do as well. Thank you for listening to High Truths on Drugs and Addiction, where you learn from experts from around the globe and around all aspects of drugs and addiction. This week's episode would not be possible without the generous support of our sponsor. A sincere and warm thank you to Isaac, the International Academy on the Science and Impact of Cannabis, Doctors Educating on the Harms of Marijuana. Visit IsaacOne.org. That's I-A-S-I-C-1.org. High Truth producer is Dave Rivas from Davey Boy Productions. I'm your host, Dr. Ronit Lev. We hope we brought your day a little bit more high truths.